The year is 2013. For six long years, an Indiana farmer, one Vernon Hugh Bowman, has petitioned a court case that has finally reached all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The case all started with seeds. Here's the backstory. In 1999, Bowman bought some soybean seeds at a local grain elevator. Those seeds had been acquired by that grain elevator from other local farmers. They were the leftovers from their first crop. Those local farmers had bought the soybean seeds from Monsanto, the big agribusiness. So here's the problem. Monsanto had a patent on a special gene that was inside those soybean seeds. And Monsanto sold those special soybean seeds with a limited-use license. That meant farmers could only plant them once. The seeds couldn't be resold for a second crop, and the harvest from the first crop could not be replanted. So in 2007, when Monsanto learned that Vernon Hugh Bowman was planting their patented soybean seeds for a second crop, they sued him. This was not that unusual for Monsanto. In the early 2000s, the company got a reputation for suing farmers, aggressively, for patent infringement. There was even a famous case in Canada where a farmer alleged that pollen from Monsanto's genetically modified crops had blown into his field. When Monsanto found the pollen there, they sued, and they won. Because Monsanto's patent protection was airtight. If the rule were otherwise, patents on seeds would be largely worthless, because as soon as the first few seeds were sold, anyone else could reproduce and sell them. Accordingly, we affirm the Federal Circuit. Our opinion is unanimous. Bowman lost that case. Zero to nine. Patents are an inseparable part of American innovation history. Light bulbs, the telephone, the Model T Ford. But light bulbs, telephones, and trucks don't reproduce themselves. So it's unsurprising that things get a bit complicated when you introduce patents into the world of nature. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is proof. Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hi, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about NakedWines.com. It's a whole new way to buy wine. NakedWines.com will ship delicious, affordable wines directly to your home, all from independent winemakers worldwide. It's a great way to try new wines with no risk. Because if you don't like a wine, they have a completely hassle-free money-back guarantee. And that's even if you drank the whole bottle. On their website, you can read reviews from other wine drinkers, and you can find advice for what wines to pair with your favorite meals. Go to nakedwines.com proof for $50 off your first order. So this whole story started for me with a picture this is producer Zach Dyer. Imagine an old, grainy, black-and-white photo. If you look close, there's a man standing at the bottom left of the photo. He's tiny. And that's because he's standing next to a 30-foot-tall wire cage erected on a hillside in West Virginia. The cage towers over him. It's made of these thick wires with an interlocking grid pattern. It's got locks. 
it even has a burglar alarm. And inside it is a tree. It's the first golden delicious apple tree. This tree in a cage kind of became an obsession for me. At first, it was this, you know, kind of like fun fact that I would bring up at a party. (laughs) Oh boy, that sounds like a really wild party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, can you tell? I'm great at parties, Bridget. But there's something just so surreal about the idea of putting a tree in a cage. Like, why would anyone want to build a cage around an apple tree? But the more I dug into this story... I saw that at its core, this this cage is this perfect little metaphor for this very controversial idea that someone can own a piece of nature. That's because when that cage was built back in 1914, there were no patents on plants, no intellectual property of living things. That cage was as close as it got. But as we know, that's not the case today. And this world that we've ended up in, where corporations can sue farmers for patent infringement, well, it all goes back to that cage and the people who wanted to patent nature. They're the Stark brothers, a family with a long history in the business of new produce. In the early 20th century, there was this appetite for better food, tastier, heartier, sweeter varieties. And the Stark brothers would become driving forces in the business of plant entrepreneurship in the United States. And their success would be determined by their relationship with their very best plant inventor. If the Stark brothers are the brain, you can call this man the heart. He was spirited, innovative, a true savant in the early days of experimental plant breeding. He's credited with introducing more than 800 flowers, fruits, vegetables, and even one very famous potato. And his name was Luther Burbank. Here is someone who influenced our entire food supply, and yet we don't remember him as well as we did a century ago. This is Jane Smith. I'm Jane Smith, and I'm the author of The Garden of Invention, Luther Burbank and the Business of Breeding Plants. Jane teaches at Northwestern outside of Chicago. She reminds me of that aunt you like who's not afraid to lovingly call you out. You are so gullible. If you've never heard of Burbank, you're not alone. Neither had Jane. And much like mine, her connection to Luther Burbank also starts with a picture. One she saw when she was passing through Santa Rosa, California. And I visited the Luther Burbank home and gardens and was struck by particularly the photo that they have on great display there of Burbank sitting between Edison and Ford, who would come to visit him. It was a hot day. It's three middle-aged men sitting on a porch step. They're holding their hats in their hands. They seem tremendously relaxed and interested in the conversation, even though they had never met before. This is an inventor. This is not just a gardener. This is not just a plant breeder. This is an inventor among inventors. And one of the reasons they look so comfortable together is that they all have that same drive to transform the world, to make something new. You might not have heard the name Luther Burbank, but I'm pretty sure you've eaten a fruit or vegetable that he introduced. Burbank was born in Massachusetts in 1849, the same year as the California Gold Rush. He was a shy, bookish kid growing up, 
He loved Thoreau. He spent a lot of time outdoors. It was the time when railroads were starting to crisscross the country and the Civil War was on the horizon. And plant breeding at that time was still pretty basic. People knew a great deal about animal breeding, but they really had very little idea of how to breed new plants. But that started to change with the work of Charles Darwin. What tremendously influenced Burbank was a book that Darwin had worked on that became basically the outtakes from The Origin of Species. He had spent decades doing research on how things varied, not through natural selection or evolution, but through human intervention. And he published it in a book called... It was called The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. He was a young man who didn't quite know what he was doing. And he took a small inheritance after he read Darwin. He was just amazed, astonished, inspired. And he bought some land in Massachusetts. And he set about experimenting. So he got to work. He's in his garden one day when he sees something strange. One of his potatoes has made a seed ball. I know it sounds weird, but potatoes don't often make these little seed balls. They look like small green tomatoes, and if you cut them open, you can see these little seeds inside. Normally, to grow a potato, you plant a seed potato, and what you grow is genetically identical to the parent potato, a clone. But these seed balls are different. The seeds inside a seed ball give you the opportunity to grow a genetically different potato. So Burbank collected these tiny seeds, 23 in all, and he saves them. He plants them for the next season. And he ends up with 22 unremarkable potatoes. And one spectacular potato. It was big. It tasted good. It was also a potato with exactly the right moisture content to be really good for freezing and frying. The Burbank potato. A potato that would later become the russet Burbank potato. Also known as the most popular potato in the world, thanks to McDonald's. But Burbank has a problem. If you sell a new potato, anybody can go out in the field and plant their own. It's a self-replicating invention. If you invent a new plow and put it in the barn, that plow is not going to reproduce behind your back. This is not true of potatoes. So in Burbank's day, the only option was to make as much money as possible selling his potato to the first buyer he could find. He finally found a seed seller who said, I'll give you $150 and really as a courtesy, I will also call it the Burbank potato. He gave Burbank $150, but that was enough money for Luther Burbank to get on a train and go to California. He started off humbly. Turns out $150 wouldn't last long in 1870s California. He practically starved. He worked as a carpenter. There was a National Depression in 1873. Banks were failing. It was not a great time to set up a new business. 
But with the help of his family, he soon set up a roadside stand and started selling produce and saplings. And also, many people wanted to suddenly become plum growers so they could get into this dried fruit business, which was so lucrative. And this was Burbank's chance for a big break. At the end of the 19th century, prunes, yes, trust me here, prunes were big business. But anyway, so one day, a banker in California who knows nothing about agriculture decides that he wants to get into this exciting new world of prunes. And of course, he didn't want to wait. So he said, I will pay you to create 20,000 new plum trees by next year. Everybody said, "Eh, can't be done, sorry. Burbank said, yes, I will do this. Burbank knew that if he tried to grow plum trees, it would take years for them to bear fruit. But he also knew from his research that there was another tree that was related to the plum that matured much faster. Almond trees. Burbank was going to combine the traits from the plum and the almond tree by doing something called grafting. So without going into the science of it all, grafting is how you make copies of a fruit tree or how you blend different traits from different plants to get something better. Grafting is an ancient technique. It's even mentioned in the Bible. But you do this by basically cutting a little notch in the rootstock, you attach a branch from a compatible plant in there, and then you tie the two plants together until they start to actually grow together as a new plant. I'm dumbing it down here a lot, but make no mistake, this is not easy. And folks in California in the 1870s, they had no idea how to do this. But Burbank did. So he took a gamble. Burbank got some financial help from the banker. He rented land, hired workers, and he grafted 20,000 plum and almond trees. And it worked. He was considered a miracle worker, and other large-scale farmers, orchardists, or wannabe large-scale people started coming to him with these huge orders. So that really set him up. Burbank used his newfound success to follow his passion. He developed new plums, walnuts, quince, along with lilies and roses. People started calling him the plant wizard. Crossing two trees that looked totally unrelated to a layperson, that took more than just knowledge. It took skill, imagination. He was making leaps of faith and leaps of intuition. And this is really where his genius was. He could have startling new ideas about how things might go together that nobody else had seen. Burbank starts publishing a catalog with all of his creations in it. And that catches the attention of a man named Clarence Stark. That's Clarence Stark of the Stark Brothers Nursery, the produce entrepreneurs of the day. The Starks ran a large nursery just north of St. Louis. So after Clarence Stark sees Burbank's catalog, He travels out to Santa Rosa in 1893 in search of his next big hit. Clarence loves what he sees. He buys a bunch of Burbank's creations, namely a $3,000 plum tree that Burbank developed, the gold plum. And remember, this is 1893. I mean, that's like spending $85,000 on the same plum tree today. Clarence Stark's trip to Santa Rosa would be the start of a long business relationship between Luther Burbank and the Stark family one that would eventually 
rewrite the rules of intellectual property in America. Burbank's home is a Greek revival house. It's two stories with white siding. A cupola sits on top of the roof. Right next door is a gothic greenhouse. It's got these glass sheets that make up the roof that kind of remind me of, like, armadillo scales. That's where I met Rachel Spaeth. How's it going? Good. What are you guys up to? Oh, we're taking out a tree. <laughs> taking out a tree, right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of tree was it? Uh, it was a kahuhu patosporum tenuifolium. All right, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rachel manages the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens. When I met her, she was wearing these big glasses and thick gauge earrings. She had tattoos climbing up her arms. She looks like this kind of, you know, punk rock gardener. Rachel and Luther kind of have a connection, even though there's about 100 years between them. I say good morning to him when I open up the house, and I say good night to him when I close up the house at the end of the day. He really liked opera, but he couldn't stand jazz. And so I kind of laughed at myself when I play Grateful Dead in the greenhouse. You know, like, eh, he wouldn't like this very much, would he? I, I don't so know they might have had different tastes in music, but Rachel has a lot in common with Burbank. She's a plant geneticist. She's doing her Ph.D. research on Burbank's plums. I get to be in that unique position of trying to figure out some of these things 100 years later. This Rachel like opens up a cabinet and pulls out jars of all these foods that Burbank introduced. This is Winterstein apples that came from his apple tree here right on site. These are some canned potatoes that are from the Burbank russet potatoes. He worked with hybridizing Japanese and American persimmons. This is kiwi from his kiwi out there that he introduced as a hairy plum in 1904. Oh, elephant garlic. Burbank was like a real-life Willy Wonka. Well, with plants instead of candy. His experiments were constantly pushing the limits of what people thought was possible, like the white blackberry. And why a white blackberry, you might ask? He bred it so that ladies wearing white gloves to eat tarts wouldn't stain them with blackberry juice. You know, I mean, do you have a problem? You've got a breeder that can try to solve it. And... (laughs) And a lot of times it was just like people would say, oh, no, you can't do that, Luther. And he'd be like, oh, just watch me. And then 10 years Walking around Burbank's home with Rachel, there's a seemingly unending list of foods, trees, flowers that he created. Like the Shasta Daisy. Those iconic white petals with the yellow center? Luther Burbank came up with that. All these creations made Burbank famous. Walk through his home, and you can see pictures of all these celebrities that he hosted. Hugo de Vries, uh, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, Helen Keller, the Paramahasa Yogananda, Jack London is up there, John Muir is up there. So when you look at the pictures of Luther out in the yard working, he's always in a suit and tie because he just never knew who was going to show up. Later on in 1916, Burbank married his secretary and editor, Elizabeth Waters. He was 67, and she was 28. So I always tell people it's the story of the rock star horticulturalist and the young hot secretary, which is kind of funny when you see her, like, cool Victorian, like, frumpy garb, right? (laughs) Burbank and Elizabeth had a happy marriage, but they never had children. And it's around this same time that the Stark Brothers nursery back in Missouri was passing on to Clarence Stark's heirs. One of his sons, Paul Stark, was especially adept at the business. He was part treasure hunter, scouring the country for new fruits, and part P.T. Barnum, a master salesman. And that brings us back to that 30-foot cage in West Virginia. It was Paul Stark who had the cage built around the Golden Delicious apple tree. It might have been to protect their investment, sure, 
But that cage was also a brilliant publicity stunt. And Paul's success in finding the next big thing in fruit made an impression on Burbank, too. Burbank and Paul Stark both knew how much work it was to find, much less create, new food. And they both agreed that it was something worth protecting. So at the end of the day, um, he would have his workers turn out their pants pockets and the cuffs of their pants to make sure they weren't stealing seeds. Really? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the Shasta Daisy took him 17 years to hybridize, and if somebody just absconds with those seeds in the middle of it, somebody else takes it to market first, even if they slap Luther's name on it. This all might sound paranoid, but Burbank's fears were well-founded. In Burbank's day, there was nothing to stop someone from just taking his work and selling it as their own. Burbank craved the security and the rewards that he thought would come with patents. Yeah, because America was patent crazy in Burbank's time. Remember, this is the era when so many inventions were first enjoyed by the nation. It was the era of the telephone, the light bulb, the automobile. There was this incredible optimism about how people could improve their lives through industry and ingenuity. There was a dream that the right invention, a patented invention, like the telephone or the light bulb, could be your ticket to wealth and fame. But that wasn't the case with plant breeding. You see, according to the law... Burbank, during his life, could not have patents. You could not patent a product of nature. And he looked around at Edison and at Ford, and he was jealous. He was resentful. He thought, why am I constantly working so hard? I have to come up with something new every single season when they can invent a light bulb and coast on the profits. Burbank lobbied for patents on his work. He wrote congressmen and senators. He gave interviews to newspapers. But it always fell on deaf ears. Burbank lamented the lack of patents for plant breeders like himself. A man can patent a mousetrap or copyright a nasty song, but if he gives the world a new fruit that will add millions to the value of the Earth's harvests, he will be fortunate if he is rewarded so much as having his name connected with the result. I would hesitate to advise a young man, no matter how gifted or devoted, to adopt plant breeding as a life work until America takes some action to protest his unquestioned rights to some benefit from his achievements. Burbank would never see the plant patents that he hoped for. He died in 1926 at the age of 77. He actually died of the hiccups. He hiccuped himself into an atrial fibrillation and had a heart attack. So he... Uncontrollable hiccups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean, he lived from 1849 to 1926, so 78 years, and it's the hiccups that take him out. Toward the end of Burbank's life, he reportedly said that his old business partners, the Stark brothers, would be the best stewards of his legacy. Paul Stark went out to Santa Rosa and signed a deal with Burbank's widow, Elizabeth. It gave Stark Brothers a majority of Burbank's creations. It's worth mentioning, Luther's desire to pass his legacy to the Starks is disputed by the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens. Nonetheless, with all of these new varieties, the Stark Brothers were very motivated to protect their investment, and they decided that the best way was to get those patents Burbank wanted so badly. The Stark brothers were going to Washington, D.C. Growers and nurserymen had been fighting for plant patents even before Burbank introduced his first famous potato. 
But the effort never got very far, and that's because... The United States patent law said that you couldn't patent a product of nature. Jane Smith again. You could patent a machine to extract gold, you could patent a timber to hold up your gold mine, but you couldn't patent the gold itself, which existed in nature. And the same thing was true of plants. And this makes sense, right? Even when we think about the golden delicious apple tree in a cage, the Stark brothers did not create that apple. They found it in nature. But what Burbank was doing was different. He was making deliberate decisions, using his know-how and creativity to make things that did not exist in nature. A white blackberry, a cactus with no spines, a plum with no seed. He would go through thousands of iterations before he created what he wanted. And there was another issue. When you get a patent, you have to describe how you made your invention and also describe how someone else could replicate it. People loved Burbank's new foods and flowers, but no one really understood how Burbank was doing what he was doing. They called him the wizard, but he wasn't actually practicing magic. The science just wasn't there yet to describe it. But that was changing. You see, the field of genetics was just starting to get off the ground. And bit by bit, it was becoming clear that Burbank was less a plant wizard and more of an inventor. So, Paul Stark became the chair of a group called the National Committee on Plant Patents. He used his lobbying skills to get a bill introduced. It was called the Plant Patent Act. Burbank's old friend Thomas Edison threw his support behind the bill. He wrote a letter of support to Congress saying, Nothing that Congress could do to help farming would be of greater value and permanence and to give the plant breeder the same status as the mechanical and chemical workers now have through patent law. This is a common argument for patent rights. The idea is that people are more motivated to create something if they know they can have exclusive rights to it. Edison argued that these protections would create hundreds of Luther Burbanks. All these would-be plant breeders needed were the patent protections that Burbank never had. But not everyone in Congress was so excited about extending patents into the world of food. After the break, a man who would one day be mayor of New York City pushes back. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello. Hey, Chad, it's Bridget. Hey, I need you to finish the sentence for me, okay? Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Oh, man. Hmm. I don't know. Butter? The bread? Oh, kitchen. Kitchen sink. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Take Kohler's Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet, for example. It has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. Speed through kitchen tasks and enjoy a cleaner and more hygienic kitchen. Learn more about the Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners. This is Jack Bishop, and I'm here to talk to you about Miyoko's Creamery and their new vegan cheddar cheese. I recently had the opportunity to taste the cheese with the America's Test Kitchen cookbook team. So we're just 
tasting these and talking about them and seeing what we think about flavor, texture. We evaluated the cheese on flavor and texture. We were really impressed. We felt like they had a little pull to them when they were melted. The cheddar, I think, and is like... cheddar actually tastes, tastes a little... Tastes like cheddar. Like, yeah. It tastes yeah. like cheddar. Do you like it? Yeah, I actually do. Yeah. Most vegan cheeses on the market are waxy in texture. They have these off flavors. Miyoko's cheddar tastes like dairy cheddar, and it melts like dairy cheddar. If you enjoy eating plant-based dishes like I do, this cheese is a reason to celebrate. It's made from natural ingredients, so it's good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at Miyoko's.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. For 30 years, OXO has been making better kitchen tools to make everyday kitchen tasks better. And if there's any kitchen task that has some room for improvement, it's mixing dough. Any home baker knows that mixing dough is always a sticky mess. So when senior product manager Benat Fake was designing OXO's brand new dough whisk, she had her work cut out for her. Usually for me, my mom used to do it with her hands. So I do it with my hands and then you realize you have so much dough on your fingers and you're like wiping it off and it's so hard to clean. Benat found that precise spacing between the coils in a dough whisk made all the difference in dough cleanup. Usually when you incorporate the dough, you could just hit this on the side and all the dough will fall off. Sometimes the simplest solutions are the most satisfying. For stick-free mixing, learn more about the all-new OXO Good Grips Dough Whisk at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Welcome back. Before the break, Luther Burbank had passed away. He never got a patent for his creations, but nursery growers like the Stark brothers, who worked closely with Burbank, had finally gotten a bill to Congress that would have granted patents on things like fruit trees and flowers. But there was one congressman who was holding things up, Fiorello LaGuardia. Now is the time to fight the right kind of a city administration that it needs. See, LaGuardia was born to Italian immigrants in New York City. He was barrel-chested and short, just over five feet tall. But he had a big impact on the city. LaGuardia was a crusading politician. He attacked the infamous Tammany Hall political machine that ran New York City. And he won. And he's the one the airport is named after. Right. But way before all of that, back in 1929, LaGuardia was a congressman from New York City. And he had a lot of doubts about this plant patent stuff. The objections that various people raised, including most wonderfully Fiorello LaGuardia, were the same objections that we had today. This would stifle invention. It would keep other people out of the field. Okay, let's take a minute just to think about this. Thomas Edison was just saying that patents would encourage innovation. But LaGuardia thinks that it will have the opposite effect. Right. Patents are great for the person who holds the patent. It's like a limited monopoly on the sale of all those plants. But a lot of people think that that slows down innovation for everyone else. So let's say you're starting out as a plant breeder. You want to come up with a new kind of, I don't know, broccoli. You start experimenting and realize that one of the broccoli plants you want to work with is already patented. So suddenly, there are royalties that need to be paid. Maybe even there's a lawsuit that happens. If you're an independent plant breeder, this all starts to become enough to shut you down. The patent on that broccoli stays, but for the rest of us, we don't get that new and exciting broccoli. This would 
drive up costs for farmers who weren't inventing would have to pay the patent holder more. There would be, and this was very prescient, there would be a danger that someone would inadvertently reproduce a patented variety and be liable for costs that they didn't intend to incur. Like pollen from a patented plant that happens to blow into another farmer's field. Now, LaGuardia was in the position of being, A, smart enough to notice this, and B, not have any farming constituents. And this mattered. When other lawmakers tried to object to parts of the bill or make changes to it, Paul Stark and his supporters were there. Stark knew how to mobilize people in those districts to hound their representatives to support plant patents. But LaGuardia... (laughs) His congressional district was Upper Manhattan, and there are very few farmers in Upper Manhattan, so he didn't have the weight of his constituents saying, no, 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 we want patents. Yeah, and let's think about the timing here. The stock market crashed in 1929, the same year that this bill was getting fast-tracked in Congress. The Great Depression was on their doorstep. LaGuardia wasn't wild about the idea of extending patents on food when people were lining up in bread lines, just struggling to feed their families. But Burbank's legend overshadowed all of these arguments. A vote against plant patents was like voting against innovation and progress. The bill quickly passed the House and then the Senate, with very little discussion. There wasn't even a recorded vote. And in 1930, President Herbert Hoover signed it into law. I tell you what, let's jump into the vault. Let's see it. I'm excited. Up at the Stark Brothers Nursery, there was something I really wanted to see. Okay. Oh my God, is there like a little, do you have to go? There's a combination. (gasps) Can I just record you just making the noise? I won't look, I won't look. Ah, so crazy. How cool. A literal bank vault. Here are the original. Of course, we don't get them like this anymore. They don't come to us in these forms Uh like they did at one time. Oh, wow. Okay. The one that was presented to us, our plant patent for the Halberta peach. Number seven, Mm -hmm. James E. Markham. Oh my gosh, it's got full color pictures too. That's incredible. Yeah. You it's it's a uh, <laughs> it's uh it's a little embarrassing to hear myself on the tape just now, but I have to say like after I've been working on this story for the last 2 years, this felt like I had found the holy grail of plant patents. I mean like when you hold it, it's got this thick cardstock paper folio bound with blue ribbon. There's this raised red seal and all this very fancy writing all over it. And then inside, you see these beautiful full-colored images of the peach. That's Jamie Cawthon from Stark Brothers. She was the one who was showing me around that day. So could you read this for me, please? So the surface of the fruit is smooth. Ground color, deep lemon yellow to orange, practically overspread with <laughs> molting, with mottling, 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 <laughs> and shading of red extending from the orange crimson at the edge of the ground color through various shades to a deep carmine appearing almost black on the exposed cheek. It's very poetic, really. It, it is. It's lovely. 
This is one of the first patents granted for a piece of fruit. And Burbank would get his first patent for a plum in 1932, six years after he died. Whereas Elizabeth Waters Burbank of Santa Rosa, California, executrix of Luther Burbank, deceased, late of Santa Rosa, California, a signer to Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards Company of Louisiana, Missouri, presented to the Commissioner of Patents a petition praying for the grant of letters patent for an alleged new and useful improvement in plums. The Stark Brothers went on to collect 140 patents from Burbank's creations and others over the following decades. The era of plant patents was just beginning. Over the decades, patent law continued to grow, covering more and more kinds of plants. Up until the debate about patents on living things was suddenly no longer just about plants. See, Dr. Ananda Chakrabarty was a microbiologist working for GE in the 1970s. He genetically engineered a bacteria that could break down crude oil, and he wanted a patent for it. The patent office refused his application, and he appealed. And then, in 1980, his case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll hear arguments next in Diamond, the commissioner of uh, patents against uh, Chakrabarty. And the Plant Patent Act of 1930 was front and center during the oral arguments. This is Edward McKee Jr. arguing for Dr. Chakrabarty. Plant breeders were desirous of obtaining patent protection for their work. They went to the Congress and asked for congressional authority for the Patent Office to grant patents on plants. They obtained such authority by way of the Plant Patent Act of 1930. There is not one word in that entire statutory history that indicates that the Congress thought that patents could not be granted on living subject matter. It's just not there. It's not there expressly, and it's not there impliedly. McKee argued that whether something was alive didn't really matter. What mattered was that a human being had stepped in, did something to it that would not occur in nature, and added value in some way. If someone like Luther Burbank could get a patent for a new plum, Dr. Chakrabarty could get one for a new kind of bacteria. So the justices thought about it. They said an animal in the forest, some newly discovered mineral, things found in nature, you cannot patent those. But they agreed that Chakrabarty's bacteria did not exist in nature. And in a 5-4 decision, they agreed with Dr. Chakrabarty. This Supreme Court decision meant that things people never dreamed of being able to patent could now be owned. Plants, yes, but also bacteria and animals. So we went from a world where there were no patents on anything alive, even a humble apple tree, to one where there's almost no end to what can be patented. And this got me thinking. Burbank wanted to patent his creation so badly, but would patents have helped Burbank or hindered him? I think that Burbank like anybody of his time, had no idea what was going to happen with plant patents. He never thought about genetic engineering in the way that we know now. But what he also never thought about, and I think this is the important thing, is the consolidation of industry. It had not crossed his mind, I'm quite sure, how few plant and seed producers there would be and how plant patents would give them 
a possibly destructive advantage over smaller people. Much of the fears LaGuardia had about patents have come true. Patents created intellectual property that in turn created incentive for bigger companies to buy up the work of individuals and smaller companies. All of these mergers and acquisitions snowballed. Today, just a handful of companies control the majority of the privately owned seed and plant breeders. This is especially true for big agribusiness crops like soybeans, corn, and wheat. I think that in agriculture, as in, say, medicine, uh, it's extremely difficult today to be a lone inventor. If somebody is tinkering in the garage, in the field, whatever, coming up with a new plant, they're going to face so many hurdles before they can introduce it that whether or not they have patent protection, it's hard for me to imagine. Now, the second question is whether somebody like Luther Burbank could thrive under those conditions. And honestly, I have no idea. So how did the Stark brothers fare in a world of plant patents? During my visit to the nursery, I met Cameron Brown. He's the president of Stark Brothers Nursery today. There was a big portrait of Luther Burbank just outside the room where we spoke. Over the years, the nursery introduced a lot of new fruit varieties and even patented some of them. But there was this hefty legal cost that came with protecting those patents. Cameron says that after a while, the lawsuits got so expensive that it stopped making business sense. And then he told me something else. Cameron says Stark Brothers isn't pursuing new patents. The time and cost of discovering and developing new varieties, the marketing, and then the patenting, it's all just too expensive. Yeah, there's a real irony to it, right? The Stark Brothers Nursery, the company that helped create the modern plant patent system, is not pursuing patents anymore. They're just not big enough to compete. We don't have that middle ground, really, between the gigantic farm and the smaller craft producer that made it possible for people to idolize somebody like Luther Burbank. Maybe it will come back again. So what happened to Luther Burbank? Why don't we know his name like we know Edison and Ford? I think it does have to do with the fact that when he sold the rights to his products, he sold the naming rights as well. So his name literally has fallen out of use. If you buy a Ford, it's still a Ford. If you buy a potato, you may not realize that it's a Burbank. Without patents or some other way to attach himself to the plants he created, Burbank's name just faded away. But we still have his work, even if we don't know it. I mean, if his legacy is to live on through things that are delicious and beautiful, he'll last forever. But every time I eat a Santa Rosa plum, I think about Luther Burbank. Every time I eat a French fry, I think about Luther Burbank. Thanks to Zach Dyer for reporting this story. Do you ever, like, get a sense that, like, there is any kind of, like, ghost in the house or anything like that? You know, sometimes I think he plays tricks on me and stuff, maybe, but uh, there's a lot of 
It doesn't feel haunted like some places do. Like I would associate haunting with unfinished business. So if there is unfinished business, maybe it's with plant patents, but it doesn't really seem like it. It seems like he had a really long, full career and hiccuped himself to death. <laughs>It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer. Associate producer, Caroline Rickard. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is fully patented and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hey there. If you're listening to Proof, there's a pretty good chance that you may have a bit of a geeky streak in you. So we've got another nerdy show to recommend. Science Diction is a new podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios. In each short episode of Science Diction, host Joanna Mayer digs into the origin of a single word or phrase. And she shows just how much science is baked into our everyday speech and conversation. Did you know that the word meme has more to do with evolutionary biology than the internet? Or that the word cobalt has mischief baked into its name. Hmm. You can find Science Diction on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 